0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software-defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net.
1: Welcome to another intent-focused episode of Software Gone Wild. In the last few episodes, we were talking about this unicorn software ideas that the academics are working on, like figuring out what parts of the router configuration are missing, or implementing Siri-like interface to network management. Today, we will talk about something that looks like it's unicorn-based, because once you start digging into what it can be doing... It does sound like it's pure awesome magic and it has a weird name. It's called Batfish. And it's one of those things that every now and then, you know, people start talking about a product like it will solve you all your headaches and bring peace to middle earth and all of that. And it was Ansible a few years back. And now I'm hearing the same vibe about Batfish. So we finally found time to sit down together with Samir Parikh head of product at Intentionet, which is the company behind Batfish, and Ratul Mahajan, founder and CEO at Intentionet. I hope I got your names and titles right. Perfect. Yeah, it was perfect. Thank you. And as always, I have co host with me to keep me honest. First of all, great news. We have Alisa Yashinska back. She did not follow the path of Titanic and managed to get back with her boat to Poland and survived the onslaught of a gazillion messages waiting in her inbox. And here she is again. Hi, Elisa.
0: Hi there. No icebergs on the way. So very good. Very good.
1: And we have Chris Young and David G. And as always, David will talk about sanity of network automation, I guess. And Chris will talk about SNMP, right? That's normal. Yep. And okay. no one will
2: talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> so that's a new rule for today.
1: No spoilers. no spoilers. No spoilers. Let's just be clear. Back to Batfish. Samir, why don't you first introduce yourselves and tell us what you're doing and then let's go into how this idea for uh, Batfish started and what it's supposed to be doing.
3: All right. So. Said, so my name is Samir Parikh. I'm head of product at Intentionet. And so Intentionet was formed as a company in order to sort of commercialize the research efforts that turned into Batfish. So I'll let Ratul speak to the details and the genesis of the technology. But we saw this opportunity around the, what the technology could do based on the early research that was done in the early application. And we wanted to sort of be able to bring that out to the broader market uh, and scale it beyond just a research project. And so that's why we formed Intentionet.
4: Yeah, my name is Rasul Mahajan. I'm uh, one of the founders of the company and currently serving as the CEO as well. So Batfish, in effect, I think um, I and my co-founders and a few other academic researchers, we started uh, with this idea about six or seven years ago, I would say. And the whole idea was to actually, it was kind of, let me step back, I think it was based on the observation that we had deeper and deeper introspection capabilities available for software that we could analyze the software fully, its behavior, before it could be deployed in production. So the research question we were asking is, can we do the same with networking? So we went down this path and, you know, it was just an academic curiosity. We thought it would take us five years to get something real. Uh, but Ari, my co-founder and our CTO, he was a brilliant developer and he made something work in two and a, about two, two and a half years. And in that time, we were getting excellent results in the university networks as well as Microsoft networks we were testing on. And I don't know if Elisa remembers, I think, uh, while she was at Microsoft, our paths crossed as well, trying to see, OK, can we make the big beast Microsoft's networks work or not? Then about a couple of years ago, I think um, while we were doing the research, I think some of us got the itch. Let's try to have a bigger impact that we can have as an independent company. And so we formed this company around Batfish. And since then, we've been maturing the technology, maturing the underneath ideas. But the central vision stays the same. Can we actually test and validate networks the way we do software today? Okay, so before we go into what Batfish can do, it
1: started as an academic project. Now there's a company behind it. Is this a commercial product? Is this open source? Is this freemium model? How do you
4: handle stuff? Batfish, the core analysis engine, is open source. It's uh, under Apache license on GitHub. It has been that way from day zero, even before the company came around, because you know we were just kind of doing research. But I think as part of the company, I think we are developing a set of solutions around the open source core that make it easier to use. So you can call it like the open core model, but I think the core analysis engine, where we understand configs, build models, and solve those models is open source fully and, and it's under Apache on GitHub.
0: Sounds a little bit like professional services and tools around to help people integrate stuff, etc. So
3: it's less professional services as sort of a business model. It's more, I mean, we do help customers on with those aspects of deployment, but it's more, you know, we're building a layer of analytics around Batfish. So when people talk about how do you verify your network? Well, you have to sort of define your policy your intent, as everybody likes to call it, there's a lot of techniques that we've developed that we can sort of auto-infer or build a baseline set of policies just based on what we understand of the network, based on parsing the configs and then sort of our experience. So that's something that's not part of the open source, for example. We create sort of a, a dashboard. We've created things that make it sort of easy for people to scale the solution in production. And then we're also working on sort of real-time data input from the network itself. Some of all of these aspects would sort of be in the closed source part of the solution. So think of it as like you have Batfish, the open source project, and you have Batfish Enterprise, the commercial version that wraps the core engine, plus these other things that we've developed around it into a service that people can purchase. The term for that is open source. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The classic sort of open core
4: business model. So it's like Ansible Tower on top of Ansible. I think the functional analogies may not hold. But yes, I think that there's a core engine that's open source and there's a layer of code or solution around it that makes it easier to use is, is more scalable and fits nicely in the enterprise uh, production frameworks. Okay, now that we got the paperwork out of the way,
1: <laughs> you mentioned that you would take device configurations from a running network and analyze them and draw some conclusions. So let's start
4: with a high-level picture. What can Batfish do for my network? If I were to try to describe it in very simple terms, I think with Batfish, we try to model how packets will flow in the network based on the config data. So we can tell you before you deploy, let's say, a config change or you're deploying a new network or you're changing an existing network, we can tell you that if you were to apply this particular change or your configs are changed in this way, this is how packets will flow in the network. And on top of that, we can do two other things. One is it's not just about packet flow. We kind of parse and understand a bunch of the management plane related stuff as well. And a third part there is that once we know the packet flow, we can do these what we call kind of verification queries on it. So we can give you mathematical guarantees that something will happen or something will not happen with respect to the packet flow. So to give you a couple of examples, so we can prove to you based on the config that, you know, two parts of the network are isolated. Or we can prove to you that a certain service running in your network is actually universally accessible. Or we can prove to you that this particular failure will have no impact on the reachability in the network, that any possible flow in the network that was being carried before the failure will be carried after the failure. So these are the kinds of things that hopefully kind of gives you a sense that what Building a model of network's forwarding plane essentially lets us answer with that issue. Okay, so there are at least
1: two other companies with similar claims, Veriflow and Forward Networks. And I've seen presentations from both of them and they claim, well, they explained that they effectively look at the current forwarding table. So they would do show IP route, for example, on every device and from that build the picture of how data is flowing around the network. Now, you're saying that you're not doing that, but you are actually looking at device configs. Did I get that right?
4: Yeah, so I think and the focus for that just comes from that we want you to do pre-deployment validation, that you should be able to check your configs uh, even before you deploy them. That's where we went down the path that using the configs, we can generate the forwarding tables, and then our analysis begins from there. But well, that means that you have to emulate the behavior of, for example,
1: all the routing protocols in the network. That's correct. That's a tough one.
4: Right.
0: It's a fun one as well. I mean, I'm already stuck on just parsing it. So, so just, parsing <laughs> all the show, just parsing all of the show output. So what vendors do you guys support and how does it go about the parsing? Let's get the data in first.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we parse using a, a parser generator called Antler. So one of the differences in our parsing approach compared to what others may have tried before, we don't kind of pick and choose specific things out of the config using a Perl or a Python script. But what we've done is uh, written Antler-based parsers, and that's open source. You can go look at them as well. So we take, essentially, try to parse the config as much as we can, and that coverage keeps improving. And from there, essentially, we build internal models that are vendor-independent, and from there, we do the route simulations to generate the ribs and the fibs of the network. Even though the core of
3: what we do is sort of the first pass is getting everything in a vendor-neutral form, we track the different the nuances of different vendors' behaviors for BGP and BGP policy and OSPF, etc. So ultimately, when the routing tables are built, they are built in a manner that are sort of faithful to the vendor nuances of how they've implemented each of those protocols.
1: Yeah, but that does mean that you have to play a lot of whack-a-mole game because, you know, every time the vendor changes something in their code, hey, you have to figure out that it has changed because it might not be as well documented as we would all
4: hope. And then you have to change your model, right? Yeah. If a change like that has happened, we have to mirror that in our code. Yeah. I also have to say I'm
2: shocked. (laughs) There's differences in implementations. Isn't there a standard? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> what planet are you living on, Chris?
0: But you said there was some some parsing tool behind it. Is that something open source as well? Or is that something internal you guys
4: have? No, this is Antler. So Antler came it's another kind of academic project, but it's open source. I can send you pointers after this. It's A-N-T-L-R, Antler. So as this part of your tool
1: is open source. Ignoring everything else your tool could do for me, I could just use this part to transform device configurations from my devices into some uniform data model, right? That's correct. Oh, Even that part is awesome. Mm -hmm. So which devices, which vendors,
3: which platforms do you support at the moment? So we have a pretty wide variety. So in terms of... I'll just go through some of the, the main ones. So in terms of routers and switches... You know, the standard sort of Cisco portfolio, so we've done a lot of work with Cisco NXOS platforms, so Nexus nine, 3K, 9K, 7K, etc. iOS XE, iOS platforms, so from 7200s, 2800s, all the way up to the ASR 1000s, iOS XR, so the CRS platforms, ASR 9Ks, NCS, etc. On the Juniper side, we support all the major Juniper platforms, so the various EX series platforms, QFX, MX, SRX. P-series, M-series, PTX. So anything that sort of runs that common Junos that we've been able to, we've interacted with with customers, the Arista platform. So, and then on the common routing and switching side, and then for firewalls, we do sort of Juniper SRXs, Cisco ASAs, Palo Alto devices. And then for load balances, we've added support for F5 and the big IP platform. And then one of the things that we're working on right now in the open networking world is sort of adding Cumulus support to Batfish. though so we've sort of done a basic implementation, but the real production version of that will come out in probably another five or six weeks.
1: Mind blown. So you have now this data model that you got from the devices. Next question would obviously be, which routing protocols do you support? So is it OSPF, ISIS, BGP, or is it weird stuff like RIP as well?
3: So I think the most complete support is sort of BGP, OSPF, ISIS, since that's the thing that we encounter time and time again with all our customers. We do have sort of, I would call, the first implementation of EIGRP because we've seen a couple of customer networks with it. But, you know, like all of these, these models sort of get enhanced as we engage with more customers using the technology. We haven't done much with RIP, but, you know, of all the protocols, it's probably the easiest one to add support for compared to the
4: others. One quick correction. EIGRP was added by one of our open source contributors. And on the BGP side, I'm guessing you're
1: supporting all the craziness that BGP can bring, like the route maps and the policies and the 27-step route selection rules and all that? Yep, pretty much. I think,
3: you know, just to sort of dive into the details there, it's like we've got broad support for, you know, the IPv4 Unicast address family and all the knobs that go with, Impacting route selection from prefix lists and route maps to distribute lists and everything else. And then we're adding the VPN family support. So we're in the process of introducing eVPN. So again, as we've engaged with customers and we've seen the networking constructs they're using, we then go ahead and build that into Batfish. So it's very much sort of organic based on the customers that are playing with the solution that are engaging with us. We then add capabilities that they need.
1: So now we got to you having grips and fips for everything.
3: And I'm guessing
1: access control lists and load balancing rules and all that stuff. That's correct.
4: And that's in the firewall session. So what can I do with that then? Yeah, so you can do three things. One is um, just kind of make sure your configuration is compliant with your site standards. So this would be just an analysis we think of like on the config text itself you can essentially get a view of how packets will flow. So you can run trace routes, just data flow. And this trace route will actually show you a very detailed view of what interfaces are being touched, what routing entries are being touched, which even a normal trace route does not typically show you. The third thing you can do is uh, guarantee correct behaviors on packet flow. So you can set up constraints like, hey, you know, this should happen or this should not happen So an example would be, you know, everybody should be able to reach the DNS server. Another example may be that you have some sensitive resource on the network. You know, a typical example would be, you know, the payroll server. So you could do things like, hey, you know, nobody should be able to reach payroll server. And when we say nobody, this guarantee will hold for all possible packets. And as we know, I think IP headers, they can be billions of packets. Based on what the models we build, you can actually get a complete guarantee of isolation, a complete guarantee of accessibility, a guarantee of fault tolerance of your network before things fail. So there are kind of a few different ways to kind of analyze it, but, and we've written questions that make it easier to answer kind of each of these in there.
1: So if I think about a question along the lines of, can A reach B? That's relatively easy. You just do breadth first or depth first. Search through the graph, and you get your answer. Mm-hmm. If I ask the question, "Are you sure that A cannot reach B under
4: any possible failure scenario?"
1: How do you answer a question like that?
4: Yeah, so that's kind of interesting observation. A couple of things going on there in that question. One is to say, even asking the question without the failure is uh, is non-trivial. I know. Yeah. So with failures, essentially, I think we have two ways to do it. One is just on the computed FIBs, we can tell you whether A reaches B or not or under specific failures, because what we can do is model essentially the impact of the failure as well. So we have a fourth type of model that we did not talk about. So just to kind of ask you a question, I think if you're asking a question on the failure, we can actually mimic failures and generate FIBs that will happen under failures. That's kind of one way to answer it. So if you're interested in kind of specific failures of interest. We have some more models that are more experimental at this point where we can directly model the impact of failure itself. The failure essentially becomes another kind of variable in the model. And we can say, okay, you know, can this variable take on a setting under which A can reach B?
0: This does not take into account any actual throughput,
4: though, right?
0: So it doesn't look at any traffic levels
4: or stuff like that. That is correct. So the kinds of properties we're talking about today are about reachability, like can a packet go from A to B? We have not built what we think is needed to get guarantees on uh, throughput or capacity. But I think given NetFlow data or given some sense of how the traffic is in the network, we think we can do that. But that's a path we haven't taken, gone down yet.
0: Mm-hmm. because of the failure of simulation would be fairly similar right you take this link out or not and then you apply some numbers to it if it something fits on top
4: or not that's correct that's what you're thinking uh, would be needed cool yeah one quick thing i would add there i think even what we are finding is that in terms of if people are worried about um let's say you know they take a link down or a router down under maintenance today what we can tell them is hey you know you had Between site A and B, you had 10 paths, and now you have five paths. So that sort of analysis can be done, but we cannot. what we don't do today is layer on actual uh, traffic amounts on top.
5: What about querying for actual physical uh, bandwidth units? So you could say, well, now we've lost five paths at 10 gig each or five paths at one gig each. Is that something you can do? So forget actual traffic profiles, but more the uh, parameters of the interfaces? Yes, we can do that.
1: So you could say, under this particular failure scenario, will I always have 10 gig between A and B? That is correct. Obviously ignoring that everyone else will be fighting for those same paths. That is correct. And then I know that Caridon was able to do, like they ran a simulation across all possible failures. So you could say, what's the worst that could happen to me under the assumption of two simultaneous
4: failures? Do you do something like that? Yeah, we actually have a notebook showing that use case. Yes, yeah, you can actually do a random search like a chaos monkey, or you could specify a set of failures you're interested in. So we can walk, we can explore a set of failures like that. Absolutely.
1: Oh, which also brings me to another use case that people are always asking me about, and you might be able to solve it. You have alternate paths over multiple ISPs, let's say, and then an ISP has a bad hair day. So they are announcing the prefixes, but effectively they're black-calling the traffic. So there's nothing you can do but shut them down. But you're afraid to do that because you don't know whether shutting them down will partition your network or how much redundancy you would have after that particular event. So I guess you can simulate that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean,
3: you could simulate turning down that BGP neighbor and then understanding if there's any reachability impact. So like Rachel said, a lot of this stuff comes down to those sort of primitive questions around reachability and, you know, what is the reachability matrix in the network at the moment? What is it going to look like under some failure scenario? And that scenario could be turning off a router, turning off a link, turning off BGP sessions to an ISP peer to understand what the impact is on the network.
4: One quick, the only quick thing I'll add is like how we made this very easy. It's very easy to kind of, you know, tell the system, hey, consider this failure. That's kind of one Python command. Another Python command is, tell me if my reachability matrix has changed at all. So this is one question, like we call it differential reachability. And that's it. And underneath what happens is a really exhaustive search for all possible flows. That could be going from anywhere to anywhere using any packet headers and those get evaluated and will tell you if there's any difference in reachability uh, that can occur as a result of a failure or any plan change for that matter. But we're talking about failures here. Yeah. The other thing
1: that I would be worried about is, you know, the other links in my network go up and down all the time. So can you take the current state of the links in the network in account, not just the device configurations when you, we are talking about potential changes in reachability?
3: Absolutely. So people can feed in the current link state as part of the analysis. So we know, OK, even though these are not shut down in the config, these are actually not active interfaces at the moment of the network. And we can factor that into the models that we build in the routing simulation. So
1: I could say, given my device configurations, given the current state of the links, I want to shut down this neighbor because he's having a bad hair day. Will I partition my network? Yes or no?
3: Yep, exactly. And like Virgil said, it's two simple queries, one to set up the analysis or the snapshot in the Batfish language, and then the other to run differential reachability and just sort of look for a binary true or false. So you get any results back, that means you've done some partitioning. If you get no results back, that tells you that there is no change to the reachability matrix. Everybody can still talk to everybody that was talking to each other before.
1: Okay, now obviously you must have a GUI in front of your tool, otherwise it wouldn't look great in PowerPoint.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So part of, you know, we were talking earlier, the open core model, we do have a GUI that we built that's not part of the open source. And it is a way for us to demonstrate the capabilities so people can sort of see you know, Something about traceroute being able to see it visually sort of gives people more confidence that it's real than looking at a set of numbers on a screen from an IPython console.
1: But my second part of the question was, you probably also have uh, either a Python library or a REST API or whatever, where I could do these things programmatically so that I could integrate this with my event-driven automation system.
3: Absolutely. So on the GitHub page for Batfish, There's the Batfish project, which is the core engine analysis, and there's what we call PyBatfish, which is the Python SDK for it. So everything that the system can do, every question you want to answer, is available to you through those Python functions as part of PyBatfish. And that's how you integrate it programmatically into whatever automation pipeline that you you currently have or planning to build.
0: So how does a typical setup look like if i wanted to set this up now the only thing i really need are my show files that i have let's say from my entire network and then what people would run this on a regular basis or they would run this once to like answer some specific question or some ongoing type of thing like what do people typically do so i think in the early
3: days the most common thing that happened was people would take their nightly rancid dumps and run each nightly dump through batfish and just get a quick summary of what's changed. Has any device config changed? What attributes have changed? Has there been any change in reachability? And you just sort of do a quick summary of, okay, every night what's changed?
1: Okay, so stop right there. So this is the tool that gives me a report every morning about what they messed up in my network yesterday?
3: Yes. Case. This particular use case, yeah. It's like one of the things that Matfish can let you do is generate that nightly... Network drift report or, you know, what went wrong report, however you want to,
4: however you want to call it. I think uh, we are working with kind of users and customers and focusing more on pre deployment validation as part of the automation pipelines. So to answer Lisa's question, I think what we are seeing is that you, your configs or things that generate your configs are sitting in Git. Something changes along a branch. A webhook goes to a CI framework. And from the CI framework, essentially, validation gets triggered. So this is essentially identical to a software workflow. And a report gets generated on all the unit tests, so to speak, you've written on your network correctness. And based on that, you may decide to merge or not merge your branch. So you have this kind of pipeline going through of automation with pre-deployment validation that triggers off of source control and CI frameworks. So I just plug this into Jenkins Pipeline. Yes, I think, uh, and Jenkins is a pretty popular choice, uh, we are seeing as well there. Yeah. yeah. The specifics. Yeah.
2: Okay. So I'm trying to parse down what you just said. So the pre-assumption is, is you've already got rancid or something else, either or generating configurations
5: mm-hmm. from
2: templates. So all that infrastructure has to be in place already, right?
3: So we think of Batfish as the service that runs, you know, somewhere in your infrastructure or in our cloud as, you know, as part of IntentNet cloud and what you have is you have some mechanism getting configurations into that fish that you want to analyze. And that mechanism could be a nightly rancid dump. That mechanism could be an automated template driven config generation tool that, you know, uses some sort of SCM. Whatever the right workflow is for you as a user, it could just be, you know, individual engineers have taken some snapshot and want to run some analysis so they have a local copy of it. So we sort of distinguish Batfish as a service, which is, hey, it's running you've got these APIs to interact with it. The minimal inputs that we need from you is your network configs. Whatever works in your particular operation, whatever works for your workflow is how you get those configs into Batfish.
2: Okay, and one of the other questions, which I think the answer is obvious, but I want to ask it, there's no virtual machines, VEOS, anything like that running around in the background, VIRL, DSRX, whatever.
3: We get that question a lot, which is sort of in the background, are you building this large emulation of my network to run these different tests on? And the answer is no. It's like everything we do is sort of model-based analysis. a simulation because that's the way it's the most sort of resource intensive. Like these comprehensive reachability checks, you know, in theory, if you had a perfect virtual emulation of your production network and packet generators, you could generate every packet header, but it'd be a very, very long and expensive test. So the one big thing is like no emulation in the system itself because we want to be able to do these things quickly and efficiently.
0: Those are researchers and it's math. It's not that hard. <laughs> that sounds awesome though. I kind of wanna I wanna set this up now and run it through my network tonight. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. We'd
3: love to get your feedback on it. And it's easy to get started. There's a Docker container that you can get from Docker Hub and you know, the Jupyter notebooks give you some basic some guidance on how to get started.
0: Awesome, yeah. I'll definitely test run this. I can't promise this week because it's Easter and family is around and stuff, but after that, I'll definitely give this a try. Nice. Awesome.
1: No, but this is getting depressing. You guys have all the right answers. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask how you deploy this, and you already said Docker container. This is depressing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ivan.
2: You might walk away with a smile on your face. <laughs>
0: maybe we don't have to try the fault. Maybe we can just ask for it. So so what are the obvious problems that you or customers have with this at this point?
3: I think in terms of what we see as sort of as we engage with customers, the biggest problem just ends up being a lack of automation as an infrastructure. I mean, I think everybody in the networking business talks about wanting to build an automation pipeline, wanting to do ci et etc. But there's very few organizations that sort of have that infrastructure in place. So A lot of our engagements in the early days are just sort of, A, guiding people saying, hey, here's what we hear other people are doing, here's best practices, here's how you get started. I think that's sort of the biggest challenge we see. And I think the other thing, you know, sort of Ivan hit the nail on the head, It's that is the fact that if there's dramatic changes to models across software versions, we have to keep up with that. So there's a fair bit of work on our side around sort of, hey, you know, Cisco just released this version of NXOS. Let's make sure there's nothing in there that requires us to update our code and then sort of recognizing those different software versions. And so that's always sort of an ongoing, I would say, struggle. And so I think we stay up to date where based on the stuff that are, the customers we're interacting with are doing. But yeah, that is always sort of a common problem when you're sort of building a model. You have to sort of stay on top of what the software versions that could impact that.
2: Did I just hear you're tracking software versions and differences in implementation between software versions on the same platform?
3: Where we're aware of it, where necessary, yes. It's like we've had to because, you know, if there is some knob that changes its meaning, the semantics of it, then we have to sort of model that. Luckily, for, you know, in a lot of our customer engagements right now and a lot of the stuff we've seen in open source, there has, hasn't been that many of them. But, you know, we fully expect as time progresses, we'll start seeing a wider variety of software releases out there in the wild
0: and we'll have to account for those.
3: I don't think you had to, but I'm really, really glad you did.
2: That's wow. That's awesome.
0: It's sometimes it's just stupid things, right? But, I don't know, the log file suddenly has, like, a space at the end before the end of the line or whatever, and things, even stupid things like that tend to...
3: Exactly. It's like, some of the stuff, you know, to, we allow, we can read in LLDP data that people provide to build the, the topology, you know, the layer one topology, the wiring diagram. We've seen bugs in, sort of, LLDP output where, you know, a vendor not to be named, like, the output was incorrect, like instead of showing you who the remote device was, they just printed the current device's name in the table over and over again. So, okay, well, if you see this, yeah, this is a bug, ignore it, and then move on. But, and then say, okay, normally this is what you'd expect to see, et cetera. So there's some of that stuff, like you said, Lisa, it's like, it's more common in show commands. So in the config constructs, it's generally not as bad. But in the show commands, it's definitely things that you have to be aware of.
0: What show commands or what tables do you guys need to feed this? Like, what would I have to dump in my nightly rancid to be able to have everything? I would say
3: if you don't have any layer two islands, right? So if it's a layer three network and then all your layer two sort of VLAN ports are just edge ports connecting the servers, then we actually don't need any topology whatsoever. We just need the config because from there we will build the IP topology of the network. The caveat obviously being that you're not reusing IP spaces. If you are sort of reusing IP spaces internally, then we, or if you have big L2 domains, then we would need the LLDP data because that allows us to create the wiring diagram, which then allows us to say, okay, you know, this subnet of 10.1.1.0 slash 24, these two are actually different subnets. Only router A and B are talking to each other, C and D are somewhere else. But those are sort of the only things that we really need to sort of get going with the analysis. And then other things. The LDP data will give us essentially give us the proxy for link state of who's up and who's down. But you could also, we don't parse that directly in Batfish today, but you could give us the output of show interfaces and we could factor that in. And then we've also working with some customers, we have the ability to take in external BGP updates. So right now it just sort of takes the format of on your peering devices, give us the output of show IP BGP or give us the output of the show the adjacency rib in, and then we can factor that into the wrap propagation. But over time, one of the things that you know, based on how people are deploying it, we think we'll end up implementing Open BMP as a way to suck that information in.
0: So that reminds me a little bit of PM Account and the way PM Account has like a parser for a bunch of things that it just you, you basically set up BGP sessions with it or all kinds of informational type of stuff that it then parses and just bright, ignores and writes down, kind of like a route collector type of thing.
3: Yeah, exactly. Same thing over here. It's like if we had the BGP updates you're getting from your peer, along with the local route calculation of what you're going to advertise, we'll factor that in through the policy pipeline and figure out how that information gets propagated throughout the network.
1: Ah, so combining device configurations with BGP information you get at the edge, in theory, you could answer the question, how will route distribution across my network be affected if I implement this change in my routing policy?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, I think just last, we wrote like a couple of more. I mean, you could always do that. I think we just working with some users and customers, we just are making it easier, even easier to do it. And by writing very targeted questions around just that very question. So we just wrote a new
3: Python API that says, it's called test route policy. And you give me the name of the route policy and a, and a pointer to the BGP routes, which we can get through the parsing. Then I'll tell you, okay, what's the impact of this policy change on these sets of prefixes? So, and models all these different attributes, which communities change, AS paths, local prep, et cetera.
0: So how about different network? Okay. If I have my IP network, everything is easy. What are kind of the hard setups where it gets, I don't know, MPLS type things. How about? If I have a VXLAN setup, layer two stuff, how does that
3: work? We don't have MPLS support in Batfish today. And so it's one of the things as we will take it on as soon as we get a customer or sort of a power open source user that really wants to go down that path. And then I think in MPLS, there's the easy case, which is just sort of LDP. You know, assuming you're doing downstream label on demand, it's pretty easy. You have your IGP routes, you have your MPLS labels for them. There's really not much to do there except making sure the MPLS adjacencies come up. I think things like traffic engineering with auto bandwidth become a little trickier because now you need to understand a little bit more about give people a way to sort of express load and what's going on to the tunnel so that you can sort of understand how many tunnels are up and what paths each of them should take. I think we're just now scratching the surface on things like EVPN. So we haven't released the EVPN work yet. It's still in development. But that we're seeing, you know, it's complicated, you know, trying to do L2 over L3 with the different modes that you can do, like, you know, symmetric routing, asymmetric routing, centralized routing for IRBs, and all these things get a little complex to encode, but we're sort of working through those. But in the Pure L2 world, we sort of haven't tackled the, hey, I've got a three-layer, four-layer Pure L2 network with spanning tree and all the spanning tree knobs. Part of us is hoping that of so spanning tree just sort of dies its natural death and goes away, so we don't have to do it. <laughs> but we sort of know that at some point we're going to get an engagement with a customer that's like, hey, look, I'd love to get rid of Spanning Tree, but this is where I am. They'll help me figure it out. And then we'll go take that on. And that'll be a reasonable of complexity as well. We just haven't tackled that yet. So
0: you um, guys implement them as you go and what the customers' needs are.
3: Exactly. I think what happened is uh, sort of like Rachel was saying in the early days, based on the core research that was done across a couple of university networks in Microsoft. And then once we formed Intentionet, everything we've added into Batfish has been based on some customer engagement uh, that we've had. Somebody saying, hey, I'd like to understand, I'd like to use your tool. Here's my data center network. Can you make it work on that? And then when we have access to configurations, that helps us sort of very quickly speed up developing these new tools. Because we don't want to just build a general parser and build all the nerd knobs that come with every vendor's implementation of every protocol. That's just too much. That's a very hard problem. So we sort of tactically implement the things that people are using.
5: I think the old way of looking at manufacturing used to be I think the the kind of Western way was we build things to solve problems and then the eastern way was we build things and they will come. So it very much sounds like you're um you know, you think yeah, I think from my perspective I know doing things the right way. Um I've been dying to kind of take this a little bit deeper and talk about the actual goings-on underneath. And um, I haven't gone off and looked at any source code yet, but can I just make a, a wild guess that underneath you've got some graph database running. Whether you're taking something off the shelf like the A4J or whether you've built your own and then these questions are effectively queries over the graph.
4: Yes and no. So we don't have a graph database in the traditional sense. I think to tell you a little bit about how we do things we, this is we are already on kind of gen three of like the actual verification solving model. What we are doing currently is translating the fibs and the ribs and NATs and firewall rules, whatever impacts you in the data plane that we have generated. We turn this into essentially represented internally using BDDs. BDDs are binary decision diagrams. It's basically a data structure that can compactly represent uh, bit vectors. And there is a graph underneath in the sense, but the graph mimics kind of topology. So we have kind of, you know, BDDs per node and BDDs representing uh, forwarding tables and whatever else is happening with your packet. And then we do a search that could be forward or backward depending on the exact query. And for some queries, we do both a forward search and a backward search over this bitwip to data structure.
5: That's yeah. interesting stuff. I'm going to have to go off and do a lot of bedtime reading now. That's... <laughs> <laughs> did you write uh, your own or did you take kind of um, off the shelf libraries and approaches for this?
4: We started with um, an off the shelf library called Java BDD uh, that was written 10 years ago. Turns out there weren't too many kind of new Java implementations, but over time, and I think we are in the middle of it, we've essentially are replacing bits and pieces of the library as we kind of run into limitations of that old code. And I wouldn't be surprised if in six months, we would have replaced every single line of uh, what we started with <laughs> uh, as we've done with other engines. And, but BDDs themselves, I think it's not a networking thing. Uh, this came out of hardware verification land and they get used all over the place for verification and analysis in hardware, in software. And that's not something, you know, we invented. We brought it to the networking land to do verification.
5: Thanks for clarifying that. Answer those burning questions.
4: Okay. Now, if we roll back
1: like 15 minutes to the point where you said, oh, people would usually start by bringing in the daily ransom dumps, then we were all over the place after that. So what would be the next thing people would usually do with your tool?
3: So I'll give you what's happened in the engagements we've had so far. So I think the first pass started with, hey, look at the rancid dumps. We show you what problems Batfish can solve for you, give you this sort of nice network analysis. Then the next step ends up being, hey, we're starting to build or think about an automation pipeline. We want to do pre-deployment validation. So the next thing ends up, we talk about, okay, how do you integrate Batfish into a CI system like Jenkins? How do you set up policies? How do you define the rules beyond sort of what we're telling you is the difference. How do you start writing what matters to your network and what are the rules that your network must follow? I hate using the word intent because it gets sort of overused a little too much these days, but basically you expect the network to do certain things for you. You've got some purpose for it when you've written and you've made your design. Let's try to encode that to the best of your ability and then we'll run that as your CI test. And so that's the next natural engagement post the sort of nightly rancid analysis
1: but that requires people to write a gazillion unit tests, right?
3: That is definitely one of the things that we run up against. So people saying, okay, well, I have to write all these unit tests. How do I sort of discreetly describe it? So that's where some of the stuff that we're doing in the closed source world comes into play, where, you know, based on what we, as we parse the network, based on things that we understand, we generate some automatic rules for them that they don't have to worry about then writing unit tests. So they think of them as built-in unit tests, like, you know, making sure all your BTP sessions are going to come up or making sure that if you've got a policy to generate an aggregate route, that that route is always going to get generated. So there's things that we build into the into our sort of what we call network analyzers or analytics that are part of the closed source that help solve that problem.
4: One thing I'd kind of add to that in terms of, I think, unit tests, I think if you didn't want too granular of information, Basically, there's one thing you can write to say, okay, has my vendor-independent model changed from yesterday and today? That's kind of one query. Then you can do another query on just reachability or differential or routes diff. So you can actually kind of write just two or three things that will tell you what has changed. Getting more granular, uh, you'll have to write more specific unit tests. But if, you, if all you wanted to know is essentially a broad view of what has changed in my network, that itself does not require too much work. Assuming
1: after this 50-odd minutes, I'm totally into Batfish and I want to try it out. What's the next step?
3: Next step is download the Docker container off the Docker Hub. Take a look at the Jupyter notebooks that are on GitHub. That helps you get started. And the third thing, we join our Slack space so that we can answer any questions.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Okay. I guess it's time we slowly wrap this up. If people want to get in touch with you, do you have a blog? Do you announce new stuff somewhere? Are you on Twitter? How can they reach you?
3: We are on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, but the best path is for them to reach out to us on Slack or there's a general mailer, info at intentionnet.com that they can send an email to and then Rachel and I monitor that and respond to inquiries. Or they can also open GitHub Issues, we try to be- make ourselves as easily accessible as possible. Sans publishing our cell phone numbers.
1: Perfect. So thanks a million for this intro to Batfish. Really interesting
0: stuff. I've got one last question. Sure. Go on.
3: Who draws the comics? <laughs> <laughs> that was just one day we were thinking we've got this weird name for a project and the couple of the folks on the team sort of drawing out. It's like, Hey, you know, we've got this thing called Batfish. We need an icon and then the icon kind of looks goofy and. That just gave us an idea It's like, hey, let's have some fun with this. You know, try to get some messages out in sort of a comic form. Figured people would like humor and it'll get us some attention. I like it. Awesome. Thank you. We'll keep it up.
1: So Elisa, starting with you, where can people find you? And what are you doing these days?
0: Oh, I don't know. I just got back. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out what's happening these days because I've missed the last year and a half. You can find me... On Ivan's website, I guess, there's an author page and there's probably an email address if anyone has a question. Chris?
2: Day job and automating the house. So, you know, same old, same old. Control issues with a K.net on as a blog, and at netman Chris on Twitter is still the best place to find me.
5: And David? You can find me with a blog, ipengineer.net, on Twitter at underscore IPengineer, and very occasionally is a co-host on this show. And you haven't changed your Twitter handle in the last hour? No, it's a record. At least an hour, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) And I'm Ivan Pipelnik. You can find me on ipspace.net, where I blog, create new webinars, rant about stupidities in software-defined everything. And if you want to find more podcast episodes, just go to podcast.ipspace.net and start
0: exploring. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.